0: I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. <laughs> welcome to the Long Now event. My name is Stuart Brand. Now, for uh, our speaker tonight, this is a hometown audience. Hometown audience, please welcome Paul Hawken.
1: Can you hear me in the back? Yes, good. Second, I was telling um, my friend as we were driving here that nobody gives shorter introductions in the world than Stuart Brand. And (laughs) and brevity is so much better than the opposite when you're being introduced. So thank you, Stuart. And thank you for this series. I was talking to Paul Sappho, and he was calling this his favorite conference, (laughs) the slow conference. (laughs) if you come... (laughs) It's just a big intermission between every, you know, speaker. And, um, but I, it could be called the Long Conference, too. I thought that might be a, a good idea for um, As so often has happened in my life, uh, my work has been affected by Stuart. I'm not saying that because he's here, because it's true. And the talk I gave here previously was called The Long Green, and it was uh, entitled by Stuart Brand. He gave me the title. That is the uh, third chapter in Blessed Unrest. Um, And tonight, when we are talking about a title for the talk, he said, The New Great Transformation, um, which I accepted, and at the same time, only really an idiot would call their talk The New Great Transformation, because those things are not talked about in real time, much less predicted. Um, But I do think it's a very, very useful um, dialectic dynamic uh, transformation in this case the one that is conventionally thought of is the, really the beginning of the industrial age 1700s and that transformation to so-called self-regulating markets that Karl Polanyi um, outlined so brilliantly in his book published in 1944 called the Great Transformation and um, you know much of that and in the Industrial Revolution but what he was saying I think was especially important he was one of the few economists who was really um, uh, synthetic, he was integrative. He really looked at all things. He did not stick to his discipline. And what he said is that the nation state had to co evolve with the so called self regulating markets in order for those markets to persevere and survive. But that those markets, those market mechanisms, would break away from the state and that the state then would become uh, secondary and sublimated to corporations and that in the process uh, we would lose our sustainability, uh, our viability in terms of resources and other things. So very very prescient work um, The other and more recently titled work called the Great Transformation was by Karen Armstrong and um, where she described the actual age the period between 200 and 900 BCE um, which was a time of great violence great barbarity really Um, uh, A a lot of cruelty from China down through India, Pakistan, into the Middle East, uh, up through um, Italy, Greece, uh, that whole area of the world was racked uh, with war. Um, And uh, it was a time when many teachers and sages and philosophers arose, And there was, in the populace itself, a great revulsion against what was being seen. And I want to revisit that a little bit later. And so the transformation that I'm going to talk about, and I do not use that word transformation to refer to it, though, is very much uh, uh, within the tension or the dynamic of these two previously referred to transformations. Blessed Unrest, Um, first of all, the title, um, the title comes from Martha Graham talking to Agnes DeMille. Agnes DeMille, both choreographers, had seen a show that she had won awards for on Broadway. She came back six months later. It was terrible. She was bemoaning her fate to Martha Graham. Martha Graham, apparently on her stoop as they uh, went home, turned to Agnes DeMille and said that, like, get over it, <laughs> we're artists. And as artists... We are never satisfied. We are always dissatisfied. There's this queer dissatisfaction that makes us march and makes us more alive than the other. Excuse me, I forgot the blessed rest. This queer dissatisfaction, this blessed unrest that makes us march and makes us more alive than the other. And um, when I saw that phrase, it was the first time I felt I had uh, words that titularly held what I was trying to describe. And what I was trying to describe was something that I began to appreciate maybe 14, 15 years ago. And during that time, I was giving a lot of talks around the country, in uh, Australia, New Zealand, as well as Europe, and some in Japan. And after those talks, people would exchange their cards with me, and I would bring them home and uh, read them, look at them, and put them in a kitchen drawer in my houseboat. During that time, I had a housekeeper, and uh, Stuart and people, Denison's know her well. Uh, she couldn't clean house, but because she was too old, she came with the houseboat. But she was an artist, and I always knew when she had been there because the house had been completely re- rearranged. And, um, and one day, the drawer with the cards, it was stuffed with these um, cards from NGOs and nonprofits and others. Uh, was full, and she had placed them all in a gold LeMay Bergdorf-Goodman bag in my closet. Um, and it was a very small houseboat, so I got dressed there in the closet every morning, and so I saw the cards every day. And when that bag was full of cards, I began to ask myself really a very simple question, which is, how many groups are there? It was really just simply uh, a data point. Uh, how many environmental groups are there in the world? And then subsequently, subsequently to that, I began to include social justice groups. And the reason I did was pretty simple, which is that I saw them as the same even though they didn't see themselves as the same. And what I mean by the same was that they were both dealing with the political-economic system that Karl Polanyi was talking about in The Great Transformation. And that system is one where institutionally, corporately, governmentally, however it is expressed, the future is basically stolen and sold in the present and it's called GDP or profit or whatever. It can be stolen in the form of clear cuts in British Columbia that make lingerie catalogs, you know, for Victoria's Secret. It can be in the form of child trafficking for plantation workers in Benin for chocolate plantations. It can be in the form of uh, of workers in factories in China uh, making chachkas, being exposed to high levels of toxicity, uh, pregnant women. Uh, So it really doesn't make any difference When you look at the environmental movement and the social justice movement, both are addressing this theft of the future. And to think of the environmental movement as not a justice movement really is a disservice to people and place. It is always and quintessentially about justice. So as I began to count both, my numbers started to go up to 30, 40, 50, 60, 70,000. And at that point, I began to go back to the literature on social movements and try to find if there was something comparable, either extant or uh, in, in, in history. And I couldn't find anything that had that many organizations. Now, you could probably stop me right now and say, well, who says it's a movement? <laughs> Just because there's so many organizations, why would you call it a movement? And several reasons, and several reasons not to as well, But as I began to look at the literature, I began to wonder if, in fact, because movements in the past had organized so differently, we were blind to this one. That is to say, the dynamics of this movement were so different that we couldn't see it. Now, normally, in in social movements, what you have is the imbalance of power being addressed by organizations, or one central organization, and trying to redress it. That is to say, to aggregate power to itself. And next you have centrality, you have a place, a location. And along with that, you have a charismatic, usually male vertebrate, sometimes female vertebrate, but somebody who is the leader, who talks for it, who speaks for it, who can represent it, who can, you know, give the soundbite. And lastly, you usually have an ideology. You have a theory about the way things should work, economically, politically, or spiritually, And you get that combination, and you've got a movement, you have an ism. Now, you look at this aggregation of organizations in the world, and as the subtitle of my book says, how the largest movement in the world came into being, you see something very different. First of all, it is not trying to aggregate power to itself. It's trying to disperse the pathological concentrations of power. A very different activity. Second, it's about ideas. It's not about ideology. You know, are there ideologues in it? Of course. Are there groups are ideological? Of course. But the movement as a whole is not ideological. What the media loves and notices is when it coalesces. If there's a march on Market Street, if on February 13, 2003, 10 million people hit the streets because of Iraq, it is noticed. If there's an altercation, tear gas, or something like that, the media loves it even more. So, a lot of people believe, in fact, that that is the movement. But I would say, having done research now for many years, that that maybe is 1% of the movement. Maybe, on a good day. That the other 98, 99% of this movement is about solutions, it's about problem solving, it is bottom-up. It is about trying to figure out, yes, it tries to prevent harm, prevent further damage, but it is trying to figure out how to change things, how to solve them, how to change this relationship between people and people, people and institutions and people and place, people and the environment. And lastly, it has no, there's leaders, but no one can speak for it. There is no spokesperson whatsoever. Right? So here we have a movement that has no earmarks of a movement. Right? So why do I call it a movement? I call it a movement because in our work at Natural Capital Institute, and I urge you to go to wiserearth.org, which is the, uh, means uh, World Index of Social and Environmental Responsibility, but at wiserearth.org, we have about 105,000, 106,000 organizations there. And you're welcome to log on your organization if it's not there. It's editable, it's a wiki, it's a lot of those things. But if you look at the about, the mission, the principal statements of these organizations, one by one by one by one, and what you find is, if you could put them up on a wall and read them and see them. You'd find that they're all very different. They're diverse, but they do not contradict each other. And this is my point. Now, you go back in the history. You go back in literature. You cannot find any movement that arose with this characteristic. It's never happened. What's happened is the opposite, which is movements have begun with a very clear set of ideals, principles, you know, and then they've begun to divide and split up, and split up. Every ism has become a schism. And what's so great about this movement is that it can't be divided. It started that way. Right? It is completely atomized, for which many people criticize it. Right? And say, get your act together. Why aren't you as together as you know, ideological organizations? Right? But what if we are doing something collectively that we cannot understand individually? I mean, Jim Lovelock was here. He talked about the Gaia hypothesis, the the idea of the earth being a living organism or having the characteristics of a living organism. But many people for a long time, Spinoza, Kant, um, Teilhard de Chardin, Lewis Thomas, have postulated that we, as a species, we human beings also have a collective characteristic and a collective intelligence that we create, but that we, not, we do not necessarily understand in real time. And so I'm suggesting that this movement may have such earmarks. And as I delve further into the social movement literature, not be able to find Metaphors, descriptors, ways that really adequately uh, uh, presented it. I went to biology. I went to medicine. I went to uh, other metaphors, and the metaphor that was most useful to me in explaining it was really the metaphor of the immune system. And "immune" means ready to serve, which is handy itself. But the immune system is the most complex system in the body, and this movement, if you allow my stipulative you know, designation of it as a movement, is the most complex movement in the world and in history, without question. So the immune system being the most complex system, our sort of cartoon picture of the immune system is, well, like the Department of Defense, you know, pathogens come in and they're tagged and they're shot dead, you know, and uh, so much for that. And sometimes there's too many and you're shot dead. Well, the immune system doesn't work that way. Not only is it complex, it actually is more like a Chamber of Commerce mixer than it is uh, an army. And antibodies go after antibodies, and there is a tremendous amount of networking going on in the immune system at all times. And what we know is that the immune system that is most resilient is best networked, that is best connected to itself within the body. And the immune system will try rapprochement or detente long before it will try to attack. Not long, but before. It tries to figure out who this is. Because what it's doing is identifying uh, things that come in, if you will, microorganisms, and saying, me, me, not me. Oh, that's a not me. And then, wow, what should we do with this? But if it's a me, pass, 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 pass. And what this movement is doing is the same thing. Collectively, it's going humane, humane not humane this is not humane and what you have is organizations and collecting gathering what should we do about it and they'll talk and they'll organize and they'll form what collectives and alliances and networks and non-profit organizations and non-governmental organizations and watch organizations and keeper organizations and village based organizations and citizen based organizations i mean I can keep going it has so many ways of expressing itself. But not only is the immune system complex, but the analog, the the closest we have to immune system in our culture is the Internet. And the Internet, as Kevin has pointed out with his quintillion transistors and million emails per second, uh, is not as complex as your immune system. So are we creating something that is the human equivalent or humanity's equivalent of the immune system? I think we are. And if we look at it from that point of view, then we don't think of it as gaining power so much as something that permeates all existing institutions, whether it be religious, educational, governmental, corporate, right? and permeating it with ideas, with memes, with 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 solutions that are thrown out if they don't work, which is what you do with ideas. You don't hold on to them. Ideologies, you hold on to. And so if you look at the proposals, the six proposals, for example, they're in Congress right now concerning greenhouse gas and climate change. You trace them back, they all go back to NGOs. 10, 20, 30 years ago. So, again and again, you see what this movement is, is permeating society as opposed to taking it over, dividing it, etc. Right. Now, the immune system. Let's go further. Which is one cell, one human cell, 400 billion molecules. In that one cell, there's 10 million-plus activities going on, tens of millions, really, going on at any given second in your body. And you multiply that times 100 billion human cells, not to mention the 900, excuse me, 100 trillion human cells, not to mention the 900 trillion non-human cells which are in you. You have a, quite a community. A lot is going on in those 900 trillion as well. But even putting them aside, in your human cells, you have one set to one octillion activities going on right now in your body, which is 10 to 100 times the number of stars in the known 15 million light-year wide universe. Okay, so that's what's going on in your body right this second. And when I present that, I always ask people two questions, which is, can, can you feel it? <laughs> it's a serious question. It's a funny question, but it's a serious question. And, and, and some people say, no, it's interesting. But my answer is, of course you can feel it. It's called life. We actually feel life. We're feeling it. We're feeling it right now. If you have any doubt about it, wait till you're dead, and you'll compare, right? And you'll say, oh yeah, I did feel it, right? Mm-hmm. And the other question is, who's in charge, right? Who's, who's running the show? And can you imagine if somebody did try to run the show? it would be dead like that, right? So again, going back to this unnamed movement, right? like no one's running the show. And I would say, thank God for once there's not a male charismatic vertebrate running the show, you know? Because it's dealing with what they have done for the last 2,500 years. Right? We don't know who's running the show. Now, to give you a sense of scale, I have a, a clip. And the, the idea for the clip, I showed this at the Long Green. I've changed it, but showed it then. Um, and the dimensions have changed. But I saw the movie Winged Migration. I don't know if any of you saw the movie. Beautiful, extraordinary movie. Um, uh, as one does, I watched the credits and sort of stood up and was walking out. And then the credits came for the thanks, that is, with thanks to the following organizations. And it was just an astonishing list of, of organizations that really are saving habitat all over the world and organizations that I had never heard of. And I had been on the board of National Audubon, so I'd heard of birding organizations and, you know, the Siberian Crane Association of Kirkusk. You know, like, oh yeah, one of my grantees, right? I mean, you could tell that these people were in places where there were was no foundations there's no grantors there's no proposals they just got together and are doing it and I, I, I cried I started to cry I felt who are these people you know and, and after, after seeing this movie you're just like oh my god thank you thank you I'll never meet you see you know you right and this is so important this what happened because if you trace this movement back you go to really to the abolitionists you got to you got to stop there in 1787 12 people in a print shop in London right announcing to the world that they were going to stop the trade in slavery right well all well and good and we look at it now saying well of course but at the time, three out of four people in the world were indentured or enslaved. And everybody's going, well, this is what humans do. They enslave people. And some of us, the, you know, the better of us are not slaves, but most of us are. And who are you? And you're meddling, and you're do-gooders, and you're liberals, and you're going to ruin the British economy. And they were denounced and derided from Parliament again and again and again, right? But what's so important about it was there was the first time a secular group got together, organized themselves to work on behalf of the suffering of other people whom they did not know, would not know, and from whom they would never receive indirect or direct benefit. It was the first time. And now look at it. Now look at us, right? We do it all the time. And so, The way to get a sense of scale about this movement instead of just numbers which I could rattle out to you look at it this way which is if I start this now which I am but if I was to continue to roll it so that you saw the name of every group in the world that's working specifically on human rights and poverty environment, ecological restoration
0: you know
1: the oceans, the forests I can go on and on uh, you would have to stay here all night tonight and be here all day tomorrow in fact you'd have to be here all night Saturday night there goes the party all day Sunday all night Sunday night and you'd continue to be here 24 hours a day from Monday Tuesday Wednesday and Thursday and on Friday you would have been here a week and what I would say to you is you have to stay here another week and then another week after that, and then another week after that. In other words, You'd have to stay here for a month, 24 hours a day, before you would have read the names of all the organizations in the world who are essentially working on these issues. Now, luckily, the person who did this for me um, loves Star Wars. also got tired of putting all the organizations on the scroll and so you'll see pretty soon that it will speed up and you can see it all in a couple of minutes. Um, Here we go. This is why I say this is the largest movement in the world. There's, There's nothing like it. There's no second place. The Catholic Church would fit in its pocket. So would Al-Qaeda, so would neoconservatism, so would economic fundamentalists, so would all those things. There we go. He actually wanted to make this into a lightsaber. Now get ahead of ourselves here. There we go. So that's scale and I want to go back a little bit to history, just revisit for a minute because in doing this I got to go back to the transcendentalists, which was such a blessing for me because I grew up in Berkeley and the person who taught transcendentalism in Berkeley, the person through whom you had to go in order to get out of there uh, was Mrs. Smith and she was an undercover Berkeley policewoman and I was practicing to be an asshole and (laughs) I decided that this was a good time to learn and so I made it known that she had no right uh, to teach the Emerson, Thoreau and everything and she made it known to me that uh, she was in charge. And uh, so I was repeatedly suspended and finally one day the dean came in and she had died and he came in and said, you know, she is dead. And I raised my hand, and my best Oscar Wilde imitation said, How could you tell? And, um, I know, he didn't like it either. And, um, yeah, oh yeah, better than that. Anyway, I was taken physically out of the room, and I was told to write an essay on rebellious youth to get back into school. And, um, yeah, I didn't. And, uh, <laughs> So I was expelled, of course. I wasn't suspended. I was suspended then, but I was expelled, and I never got my high school degree, and uh, thanks to Mrs. Smith. And, but, so going back to the transcendentalist was such a treat, because I don't think you can understand these guys and these women when you're 17. I think it's impossible. I don't know what Emerson was smoking or what, but I mean, the fact is, when you read him now. It is a completely different experience. And really, Emerson was packaged by a Calvinist America into these little essays like Prudence, and you think he was like a penny-pinching frugal Yankee. And in fact, he was someplace else. And the, the story, though, that caught my attention, and it's a brilliant, brilliant biography, Mind on Fire, by Richardson, who's here at Berkeley. Just brilliant. And he also did a brilliant one of throws as well. But in that biography, he, he talks about a, a little-known event, but a really critical event. I think, in, in the environmental movement and also in, in, in the end of the social justice movement. And, and, and bear with me here. So Emerson's wife has died. He's long-faced, he's sad, he's gloomy. He leaves on the 25th of December, 1832, and he goes to Europe to see Coleridge and Wordsworth and his friends there. And he goes to Malta, he goes up the boot of Italy, and he ends up in uh, Paris. And there, Bernard Dussault and Antoine Laurent de Dussault have created this extraordinary uh, uh, exposition and botanical garden, the Jardin de Plantes, and the Cabinet of Natural History, and these are taxonomists. They're, they're in the systematics. I mean, they're brilliant. Wallace and Darwin borrowed from them wholesale. <laughs> and it's 1833. He goes there. What the Giseaux's have done has taken plants and shells and bones and skeletons and, uh, you know, uh, preserved specimens and they have arranged them in these arrays of color and palette and form and you can see evolution you can see it it's right there no one had a word for it there was no word for the web of life and Emerson for the first time is elated he's rhapsodic and he goes in that night and he writes in his journal that everything is nature which he's been sort of thinking about and postulating but now he knows it that everything is nature Everything is connected. And he starts, what is the nature of the mind? What is the nature of governance? What is the nature of religion? What is the nature of law? And he goes back and he writes Nature. That's his first book. And really, the first, very first person to read it, one of the very first persons, is Harvard's first hippie, Henry David Thoreau. He buys it. And he's so taken by it. And he reads it again. And he invites Emerson to give the senior class talk, or he and the seniors do. Then he invites himself over to Emerson's house, because he's graduated and he said, what can I do? You know, I went to Harvard, I'm unemployable, <laughs> you know, I know how to make pencils, right? And, and Emerson says, keep a journal, which he does for 7,000 pages from that point on. Amazing piece of advice. And what's so critical about that is that 12 years later he's arrested for not paying his poll tax. Famous story. But what isn't often understood is he didn't pay the poll tax that year because we had elected a president who knew he was going to war before he was elected. Polk, the Mexican War. And he was outraged by the war, by the conduct of the war, the injustice of the war, the illegality of the war. Um, A distant relative of mine, Ethan uh, Allen um, Hamilton, wrote a 500-page journal. He was seconded to Zachary Taylor. And he says, this is nuts. This is crazy. We will pay for this for decades to come in loss of character and integrity, this country. And what what Thoreau is saying, basically, is that if I am paying taxes for Texas Rangers raping Mexican women, I'm a rapist. Right? What he said, basically, was, if the government is unjust, the just man is in jail. And that's what he wrote. right? After he got out of jail, he gave a talk at the Concord Lyceum, he wrote an essay, Resistance to Civil Government. And the story of Emerson coming to him and saying, Henry, what are you doing in there? And him saying, Waldo, what are you doing out there? is so cute, but so not true. But it is so important as a story because it really, really was a split. And the teacher and the student, the student had taken the teacher at his word. Everything is connected. And Thoreau saw that in a social justice context. Everything is connected. And he acted on it. And it it made Emerson so uncomfortable because there was this stigma about going to jail. And 1862, Thoreau dies, 1866, This essay is renamed Civil Disobedience, and nobody knows to this day who named it. No one knows where the word came from. It's not in the essay. But what we do know is that 40 years later, after Gandhi had led a meeting in Johannesburg with Hindus and Muslims voting to get arrested instead of register under the Black Act, and Gandhi writing in his journal that night, I'm not sure what we have done. I'm not sure this is good. This is not good for my career. right? Somebody from the Indian Times gives him civil disobedience. And he reads it. And he gets arrested. And he carries it into jail. He shows it to <laughs> the press as he goes into jail. In other words, what Thoreau did was making going to jail cool. <laughs> right? How many of you have been in jail? On. Oh, see some, yeah, right. We thought it was pretty, pretty hot when we went out. I was proud to be arrested, right? And again, and again, you know, each time. right? But Thoreau did that, you know? And this comes up again because 48 years after that, when Rosa Parks is standing to get on the Fane bus where she didn't get off and give up her seat to a white man, the driver that night is James Blake, the man who threw her off the bus 12 years before. The most amazing thing she did that night was actually get on the bus instead of go to fight or flight. Her adrenals were all lit up. Why did she get on the bus? She got on the bus because she was sent to the Highlander School that summer by Clifford and Virginia Doer right, to learn civil disobedience to enforce Brown versus Board of Education, a school influenced by Mohandas K. Gandhi. Right? And so we see the split that happened with the sort of Emersonian and Therovian school, if you will, of the environment, and this social justice movement, if you will, that not the only one in the world, please, but a very important one, right, that came off, off of that. You know. And to me, what we're seeing now is these are starting to come back together again. And I think you cannot, in, uh, especially now funders, I mean, if an environmental organization does not take into consideration social equity issues, it's not really a very good proposal. And more and more, like you see Van Jones and so forth in Oakland, you're seeing this really coming together, of green jobs of social equity, of really combining, if you will, bringing back together the social justice and the environmental movement. Now there is, here somewhere, um, one more thing I want to show you, I think if I have it right, if I don't, I'll fix it for you. Um, I might have. Um, I think I got it wrong. No, I don't. But what I want to show you here is simply categories, and um, these are just what we call areas of focus. And um, when we started to catalog the organizations in this movement at WiserEarth.org, we sort of iteratively looked at what they do, that is, you tell us. And being inspired by the Gousseau family in Paris, we decided to create a taxonomy of this movement. Danny Hillis is here tonight, has seen it, and um, it will go to rebase. But it's 414 categories and then 20,000 different uh, tags and keywords and sub-sub-subcategories. And when you see this, and I urge you to go to wiserearth.org, if only just to look at this, to see the immensity, the complexity, the diversity of this movement. But the thing is, when you look at it, you will see, yes, connected, 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 connected. And the biggest contributor to poverty is corruption. Right? One of the greatest contributors to resource depletion is poverty. And resource depletion drives poverty again, it drives deracination. It drives migration to cities, 1.4 million people per week. It creates big pools of exploitable and very, very inexpensive labor, which drives globalization, which drives lower prices, which drives consumerism, which drives the use of fossil fuels, which drives climate change, which drives the heating of the ocean, which drives the death of coral reefs, which causes the loss of fisheries for the poor. It goes on and on and on, right? Anywhere you start, you can make the connection. It all is connected together, right? and one of the things I think that's notable what we did here by the way is speed it up the same way so you didn't want to watch all 414 Um, and there's our URL which I'm sure you can memorize okay Um, but when how can I say this when when you look at this ensemble, and that's why I urge you to go to this, what you're seeing is a curriculum of the 21st century. What you're seeing is humanity in 243 different countries, islands, or sovereignties, which is what the database consists of. Basically, rising up, a bottom-up movement, trying to address the problems. Why do we call them non-governmental organizations? Right? Think about it. And the reason we do is because there's a big, really big NGO, and it's called Washington, D.C., right? That's the non-governing organization. And there's one in Tokyo, and there's one in Paris, and there's one in London, there's one in Bonn, there's one in They're all over the world. They're called governments. And a long time ago, they stopped governing, and they, and they started serving. This movement is arising from the bottom up because it's corrupt from the top down because that's who governments are mostly serving. Right? And so this is a surrogacy right, for a tremendous vacuum of leadership that exists in the world. Now go back to the great transformation, the actual age, which is, again, if you look at these organizations and you look at their value statements, their principles, their abouts, there's something deeper there which is common to all of them. And what was so extraordinary about the actual age Socrates, Isaiah Jeremiah, Buddha Mencius, Lao Tzu is that when you read Karen Armstrong's book when you read the literature of that time these people were starting social movements. These were not religions. Yes. The age of religiosity for sure. Of reverence Yes. All of these people and more were starting movements to address the suffering of other people. And they were talking about, about how to lead. They were talking about reimagining what it means to be a human being in an age of violence and barbarity. Right? And independently, if you look again at the readings, all of them came up with what Rabbi Hillel did, which is really this basic maxim, never, ever do anything to anyone you would not have done to yourself, right? The golden rule. They all uttered it. They all enunciated it. They all published it, right? Or somebody wrote it down, right? And along with that, they also said one other thing, which is all life is sacred. Child, creature, culture, life is sacred, right? And if you take those two, and you overlay it across this movement, and you look at the underlying values and principles, you will find that that's common to all of them. Just non-humane. Don't do it. What can I do to help? What can I do to prevent it? What can I do to resist it? Right? And that's what this movement is about. I'm not going to get woo-woo about it. It can fail. It's got sharp elbows. Immune systems fail, you know. It's not better than anybody else. They're not nicer people. They're nice people. There's nice people everywhere. you know. But something's going on. <laughs> it's the fastest growing movement in the world. And going back to the idea of networking, what I think we're seeing now is because of cell phones and texting and the Internet, it is starting to hook up in ways which were unimaginable even ten years ago, five years ago. Stewart sent me a piece, many of you saw it, about a million Chinese getting together and texting on their cell phones to stop the construction of a very toxic uh, chemical plant that would be near their home. Right? They rose up. Right? So what we're seeing now is an atomized movement that has too much duplication, for sure, now starting to change its sense of self, how it sees itself, and then how it acts in the world. Right, And um, this, as I said, is something that has never happened before. People say, is it too late? Are you optimistic? Do you sound optimistic? If you look at the data and you're optimistic, I don't think you're looking at the data. The data is terrible. You know it. I feel like if you look at these people, if you meet them, if you go to Wiser Earth, you look at these Organizations one by one by one, as my staff has done, and you're not optimistic about who we are, then you don't have a pulse. So it's <laughs> both are true, right? And and I feel like the things that that separate us, you know, are going to become less and less important in the decades to come. Um, do I have two more minutes, or should I two more? Okay, two more minutes. But recently. Many of you know Kenny Ausubal. He founded the Bioneers. Uh, Kenny is a Russian Jew. Everybody in his family knows that. He had his DNA done, and it turns out he was 40% Italian. So he went to his mom and said, Hey, what's going on? She said, "Whoa, we don't talk about that. So we know uh, Hawkins, Cornish, we know we're Scottish, potato famine, Irish, Swedish, and um, French. Well, records, I mean, you know, cold. So I had my cheek swabbed. <laughs> I thought, this is cool. I'll send it and find out who I am. Anyway, Swiss, Portuguese, Italian, Spanish, and Flemish. And, and I was like, wow, I don't have to be an uptight white guy anymore. <laughs> I'm Portuguese, I'm Italian, you know. And it's like, I'm hot, you know. <laughs> My my skin started to change, it got darker, you know. My hair, it's too late, but hey. And I realized in that instant as it came as an email that my whole sense of self changed. Why? Well, because of completely artificial concepts I had about self, right? But those concepts about being Spanish and Italian and Portuguese are just as artificial as well, (laughs) right? We're riddled with them. And when you see somebody on the road who's hurt, you ask them what religion, who they voted for. And you help them. You have this deep, deep instinct to help somebody immediately, regardless of anything they've done in their past. Right? And I feel that where we're approaching, because of the data, because of the this uh, information that's coming to us, is that the things that have been separating us are going to become a lot less important to us, and the things that bring us together are going to become a lot more important. And I feel like this movement has to do that, but it's also an augury of the future. It is coming together, it's connecting, it's organizing, no predictions. I, there may be questions that ask me to predict what will happen. No idea. My job was to describe it as best I could. And I hope that if you go to Wiser, that there's many more interpretations and descriptions that arise of it. Anyway, thank you very much. And I think we're going to do Q&A.
0: Can I have some of your water? I just yeah, please do. We're friends. The big share water moment.
1: Yeah, and we got good immune systems. Water brother. Um, You're touring now for your book. Uh, This is the last uh, date of the tour. This is I've been on the week. I've been on the road four weeks. City Night, almost. Um, this is the last gig, so I am so happy. All right. <laughs> yeah. uh,
0: then this is the perfect time. time to ask you. I mean, the genesis story you give for this book is you're out there giving talks on environment and various things, and people come up to you with their business cards, and you start to realize something's going on. Yeah. Well, now you've been out on the road with this story. Right, and people give me a whole bunch of more cards. I, I have, dare say. I have a whole bunch of them. But <laughs> so what else? You know, you write a book, and that puts a bunch of uh, ideas in place, and then you go out, and you see the book hitting the world, and oh, you yeah. hitting the world. What's coming back to you that, uh, if God forbid you were you know, doing an
1: epilogue to the book
0: right now, what would you add?
1: <laughs> well, there's a lot of things I would add that I took out, and one of the things, I, I don't know how many how many people bought collapse, okay? And how many people read collapse? I'm, I'm talking about the whole thing. And I know you did. Huh? You can, you don't count. Um, but, I, you know, th- they call them in the trade goobs, great unread books. In other words, they're great books, but they're never fully read. And there was, when I was writing this, there, there was so much more information that I left out. One of the things that came to me was uh, a friend collects books that were owned by the Transcendentalists and he gave me the photostat and a copy, not the original copy, but of a book called A Manual of Buddhism owned by Thoreau with his annotations on the margins <laughs> that was above his head at Walden in the cabin. You know. And I thought, whoa, <laughs> I didn't get taught that in high school. And so there's so much, and then he would go to the Emerson's for dinner, and they would argue about, not argue, but talk about the Gita, and, and Emerson just thought it was scripture easily as valuable as, and worthy as the Bible, and, and this is from a Unitarian. Um, so there was a lot of things that, that I left out that I, I feel like if I was going to go back, I would do a long uh, addendum, you know, there's a long appendix already, but a long addendum, and I would sort of put in the things that were left out that I just think are fascinating uh, influences, because that goes right back again to get into the axial age and how it influenced, you know, the transcendentalists.
0: Well, the axial age had uh, you know, Lao Tzu and Buddha and various people standing up for these things, and you must encounter when you get an audience of people all pointed at you, uh, and you're saying, you know, there's, this is amazing movement, but it has no spokesman. And they're out there thinking, "Is he the one?"
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so many people think that. Um, but I'm the one. How many of your parents have read that book? Are you my mother? You know, and <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and if you haven't read it, and you, if you're ever a parent, you probably will read it. And it's just about a bird who f- falls out of the nest and then goes walking around and. Mistakes, steam shovels, and automobile ornaments, and I don't know what else, tra- tra- tractor, or, you know, whatever. But for, it, are you my mother? And it goes around asking, are you my mother? And of course, finally, it's united with its mother, and you know, you want to read it once, but your kids will ask for it every night for <laughs> Read you are my mother. And it's like, but I think everything has a mother, and I think this movement does. And so my role with the book, with the, the documentary that's coming and WiserEarth.org, our role in terms of WiserEarth, because I have a lot of staff here, uh, is actually to hold up a mirror and say, hey, you're beautiful, take a look. You know? I mean, that's what that scroll was, which is, because I know people, many people, uh, I, and when I've traveled, have started to cry when they've seen that. And I thought, well, it is moving. And I think, well, why do they cry? I think they cry... Because for two reasons, one is because they've taken on so much of this burden. You know, they feel like they have to save the world, and that's getting really bad fast. And they're not doing enough. And there's this constant, you know, undermining of self and burning out, which is the worst thing. And I think when they see this, there's a sense of relief, like, "Wow, you know, I mean, I can only, I can. What what I'm doing is adequate. Yes, it's adequate. I mean, it's good enough because you have a lot of, you know." kin and kith out there that are working together that you never knew about you know and so it's like are you my mother it's like being an orphan and finding you have this huge extended family you know and that you didn't know about yeah
0: since you mentioned it say a little bit about the documentary in progress well it
1: the i think we learn in different ways i mean so when when we the internet is one way of taking information but it's very different than reading Uh, a a page of a book very different and and yet the words and why reading off a digital you know a a screen why reading off a book I don't know but they're different and but so is sound and light (laughs) and that's what movie is and uh, I was talking to somebody when I was writing the book and I said what makes I was saying what makes a great book and to me a great book is you want to turn the page you don't turn the page it's not so great and and what makes a great movie is when you're sitting in that place in, in, your, in your chair and you've forgotten your butt the whole, you know, two hours, you know. I mean, you don't, you don't really feel you're, you're someplace else. You, you've been transported. And so the movie really uh, is attempt to go there rather than being just a recantation, you know, of the book or something like that. And um, it goes into history, but, um, but you'll, well, I'll be happy to screen it here. That would be fine. Yes, that
0: would be fine. So, but anyway, cameras and you are going out to the many no, organizations? No, not or what? me.
1: No. Mm-hmm. I, I'm going to do the narrative. You okay. Know. The, the model, it, it, people see The Power Nightmares by Adam Curtis. Anybody see that movie? Brilliant, brilliant BBC documentary. It's just exquisite if you can get it. He didn't get permission, so it, it's not shown here, but it really shows how the U.S. literally created Al-Qaeda. But... And and the, the use of fear to control us, but it was what's so beautiful about the movie is that he just launched. And when the movie starts, he just launches as a narrative, and there's no pussyfooting around. And you just there you go, and you're off and running. And that's sort of like the model of, of blessed unrest, which is just ready go.
0: A uh, question from Billy Matheson out here somewhere. Um, you're. The previous book was uh, The New Capitalism. Natural uh, Capitalism. Creating the Next Industrial Revolution,
1: yes. This question is,
0: is this new book uh, Natural Socialism?
1: (laughs) Well, Natural Capitalism, you know, uh, the modifier was Natural Capital. It wasn't Capitalism. Uh, I coined that term when I wrote the piece. I had a great editor at Mother Jones, Carrie Tremaine. And we were trying to think of a title that would really kind of get under the skin of Mother Jones readers. And so it was Natural Capitalism. And, um, but actually, the ism was a modifier, and it was really about what happens with natural capital, which is a term, E.F. Schumacher coin, uh, when it becomes a limiting factor to human well-being. And there was this speculation of what would happen, what you could do about it. So um, this is not about natural socialism, but, it, um, but I don't think socialism really worked, actually. I, I think the 19th century, the isms were created. The 20th century, they, they duped it out and 120 million people died, and now I think we're seeing the end of isms, and they're taking these strange distorted forms, like neoconservatism and radical religious uh, uh, organizations and economic fundamentalism. But I actually think we're seeing the end, and I think we're moving from uh, a world created by uh, power, a world created by privilege, to a world created by community. And this is a very major transition we're in that I don't think is really totally uh, identified and understood. Uh, but it's very, very, it's happening. We, you know, Jamie Wells is here Wikipedia. It's a world created by community, right? And uh, not by privilege. And privilege doesn't like it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> privilege is having to put up with it. It's interesting. Uh, <clears throat> here's a pair of related questions. One from the Seth Ferry, who's here. here. Thank you. And Kevin Kelly, who's right here. Um, basically, these are two questions about, here's this great, uh, healthy, health-conserving system. Hmm. And Seth Perry asks, uh, I'll put both questions to you, what are the limits to growth for this movement? NGOs compete for funding, is that a limit? Are there other limits? How big can it get before imploding? One question. Hmm. Kevin naturally comes at it from Bioscience. Um, if this movement is parallel to the immune system, is there equivalent of an autoimmune disease in this transformation?
1: Yeah, I, I love that, I love both questions. The first one I can't answer, though, because it's predictive. I have no idea. Uh, And as I said, I won't predict. Um, Have there been scale issues so far would be one way to think about that. The scale issues, I think, come in, somebody raised the issue of, like, transaction costs. It has high transaction costs because there's so much duplication and replication. And I think that's true, but I think that's also true in the human body, too. (laughs) High transaction costs. And so I don't think that is a disqualifier of its effectiveness. Um, In terms of scale. Uh, I think, I, my guess is going to go to f- five, six, seven million organizations, is my guess. Because I, I think it's going to be the stroke of midnight for the rest of our lives, and so therefore I, I think we're, we're going to need each other, and we're going to need to organize in ways. The, what we see is that um, people are getting more and more uh, uh, um, innovative in terms of how they organize that does not depend on very large amounts of money. At the same time, the so-called grantor community is getting very, very innovative in terms of how to transfer small, meaningful amounts of money to groups in need in a timely way, like uh, Global Green Grants and and Kiva.org, which Catherine Fulton talked about. So there's something going on, some symbiosis going on there. In terms of autoimmune, autoimmune is really when... And it's interesting because the way I look at it is people... Look at this. Say, "Well, if it's such an effective movement, how come we're tanking?" And (laughs) a valid question. But the immune system, when it when it is uh, healthy, lags. There's a real lag to to pathogen, pathogenic uh, invasion, and that lag is called sickness and illness and disease. Um, when there isn't that lag, it's autoimmune. In other words, when the immune system starts, you know, autoimmune, of course, identifies itself as me, and or not me, and then attacks itself. But essentially, you could look at anything that has a lag as being a healthy system. And um, so uh, I would say that that doesn't mean what the, it will succeed, by the way. I, I'm not saying that. But I, I, when I was writing the book, I... Did talk to immunologists and and um, and th- I, I'm sure there's many scientists here and doctors maybe and but it, it, as we know particularly in climate there's things that scientists will say in private that they will not say in public for obvious reasons but they're, they're real for them and and uh, just like it was a Julie Gallagher actually did the opposite she was giving a she's a climatologist and giving a paper. To her colleagues, and at the end of the paper, she started to break down, she she has a child who's a year old, and she she started to weep, you know. And she couldn't keep those two separate. But scientists will say things to you, you know, one-on-one that they won't publish or go on record. And what uh, a couple immunologists said was, you know, when it gets to that point where you're just so sick and getting sicker and secondary infections are happening, you just feel like it's curtains, you kind of wish it was, you feel so bad, and you actually... Entertain the thought that you may be dying, there is that moment where the immune system basically turns, that inflection point. And what they were saying is, we actually don't understand what happens at that point. It, by what we know, it shouldn't happen. It should keep going down and we, you should die or whoever has the disease. And I found that sort of interesting, that there is this Sort of Hollywood mov- movement, <laughs> or moment in our bodies, you know, that um, we can't really understand yet in a scientific way. Um,
0: this is going to be a question about the singularity uh-huh. how it relates to this. And yeah. uh, we had Ray Kurzweil here a couple of years ago talking about the singularity. We had Werner Venge here saying, What if the singularity didn't happen? Right. Not likely, but uh, how would that work out? And so the way this question is is phrased is the topic of the singularity comes up frequently at Long Now seminars. Right. Do you see the rise of the social social immune system as an emergent phenomenon that is responding even now to the incredibly complex social and moral issues that are forming as greatly more intelligent forms of life on Earth arise in this century?
1: Um. I'd have to ask what, what the question meant by the greatly more intelligent forms of life that are arising in this century. Is he talking about synthetic life? Is he talking about... You want to say? It's a, it's a fascinating question. I, I just don't... I'm not sure I understand the tag. Oh yeah right, got it. thank you, yeah um you know i, I read I read croois's book i I fascinated I'm fascinated by the fact that he takes two hundred different pills every day to keep himself, and I sort of looked at him and thought, he kind of looks like all my friends the same age, but anyway um, and in the end, I, when I, after I read it, I, I went out to uh, the garden and I just thought, wait a minute. You know, we stand on Earth here, and the things that are going to determine our lives in the next hundred years are more likely to be soil and water um, and food and the way we interrelate with each other. And not that I am, you know, against you know singularity or, or some of the things he's imagining. So much is that I think that. I think a, a sort of a, a, a basic uh, understanding is lost on all that. And I sort of saw that in the 200 vitamins, the idea that somehow you can, you know, pump all this stuff in there and not just blow your kidneys all to hell, you know. But taking 200 vitamins a day, which you do, the kidney just gets so stressed, like, oh my God, what is this, you know. and And I just feel like that that this movement is really a, a, a ground-up movement. And it's not that it's anti-technology, to the contrary. I don't think anybody uses, for example, the internet more, more effectively than this movement. I mean, it's very effective in use of technological resources. Uh, but I, I don't see it as, in a sense, an anticipation of something that's predicted that hasn't happened. A couple
0: of questions about the, um, who's in the, the database. Um, one's from Anonymous. What do you think is the total number of people in all the organizations listed in WiserEarth.org and that are implied by... Implied? The
1: whole. I think there's about 100 million FTEs right now in the world working, full-time, employee, uh, full-time employees, um, uh, working every day on these issues, and I would say that's a minimum. Every time that we have made a prediction, given a number, a guesstimate, it's been low. Uh, uh, when we hit 150,000, that was two years ago at the Long Green. That seemed high. seemed a little, a million seemed really outrageous. seemed kind of like showboating. That's real low, no question about it. Uh, it's probably two. Um, and so the, the 100 million people is is, is a, is a very, very, very fair estimate. Uh, process, advice, always keep that number below what you think it is. Exactly, I'm trying to, yeah. You, you, you hate right. to, you know. I want somebody that to surprise me. Yeah. Less than you yeah. thought.
0: A uh, question I had is you said there's surprisingly little contradiction between this wide array, very wide array of, of you know, in their mission statements and things in, like in that. In the value statements. Right. In the
1: value statements. The you value get, statements, okay. In the value statements. Because no, I you, would say,
0: you know, there's a, an oh, yeah. environmentalist for nuclear energy group in... in
1: in the UK. I'm standing next to one. Okay. Um, I don't have such a group, but there is such a group. Are they in your, you know, would they be in your database? Is that okay? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. But I'm talking about the values. If, if everyone agreed, that would be just, Well, I mean, who would want to be in a movement like that? Uh, that would be death, you know. But I'm talking about the values that inform the conversation, that inform the activity. And you have animal rights people in there, um, and you have people who are hunters, right? And they both care deeply about habitat and about species, uh, conservation, and diversity. But some shoot them and some don't eat them. And, and, and yet they're in there together. So there's, there, there's a quote in the book by Barry Lopez, beautiful quote about we live in, in a world of contradiction and without which we would basically, our life would become meaningless without these contradictions.
0: Hey, a final question, uh, building on uh, something that Terran Norris asked, which is, you describe this movement as coming together, but do you think certain parts of the movement, like some of the fatalism of environmentalism up till now, must first die so that something greater can live? In other words, right. the, there's agreement on values, but there's a state change going on. Right. There is a transformation. Yes. In what ways... Does the value system itself possibly transform? What needs to get lost for uh,
1: these new things to have the power that they, in fact, want to have? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the implication is that there is a value system, and I, I don't think there is. I think what I'm saying is that the values are arising in every city, country, culture, every indigenous tribe, um, and... Um, and when you look at them, what you find is that they don't contradict, but I'm not saying that it, it's the opposite of it's like, okay, this is the value system. I mean, it, when you, there's got to be people here who have started NGOs, when you started it, did you check with anybody to see if you got your mission statement right? You know, That's so preposterous, right? You know you got it right because you worked with people to get it right and you maybe keep adjusting it. And so um, there just isn't that kind of... Um, uh, uniformity, if you will. Its strength is in its diversity. The fatalism, I think, that was in the question about the environmental movement um, ha- is understandable in its origins because um, when you go back 20, 30 years, nobody was listening, and so there was a tendency to keep amping up <laughs> the story, the narrative, and now the narrative actually, the reality is caught up with the narrative, <laughs> and, and so it's not hype anymore and um, and now they don't know what to say because actually now what you find is them actually tamping down the story because if you tell really what the true science, not true, but the cutting-edge science on climate change is, now it's so depressing that you kind of lose your audience, so you tend to now do the opposite. Um, so I see that happening, but I also see um, really because... And, and this is limited to, to non-profits, but you see on in here in California, you see this just... Explosion of, of of businesses and technology and, and sort of uh, hybrid organizations, you know, the venture organizations, venture philanthropy. Uh, the, the you know the the, the line between for and nonprofit is getting blurry, and the uh, the ideation and the innovation, the creativity is just exploding right now. Um, and so uh, I don't see it, again. I don't see it as a monolith. Well, I think
0: there's another change uh, suggested by another question, which I think will be the last. Kevin Braithwaite asks, how do you see this movement changing the role of corporations? What role will they play in this growing growing community? And I would broaden that and say, what you've talked about is what's going on, what's called the social sector.
1: Right, social, civil society. There is still
0: a whole lot of private sector and still a whole lot of public sector. So private sectors, corporations, businesses, large and small, global and local. right? There are governments uh, that haven't gone away and show right. signs of not going away for uh, some bad reasons, no, we've but also no. some good reasons. But no, we need government. Yeah. And so in light of this change in their environment, their corporate environment and their governmental environment, what changes are they likely to be uh,
1: having to think well, about? Well, it's kind of what I was saying earlier about the things that separated us are becoming really unimportant. Let me give you two, just a couple quick examples. One is um, the, the company everyone loves to hate the most, Walmart when they made their commitment to the environment, which is the real deal, the commitment, and I mean, they're not faking that. Um, uh, they turned to the NGO community. And and there's they didn't let me list them all in the book, but I mean, it's great NGOs. I mean, whether it's diamonds or water or waterless urinals or you know, I mean, products or cotton or this. I mean, they turned to the best NGOs and brought them in, and some wanted to be known, some didn't, but that's who they turn to to educate themselves. And they still are. You know. Second, a friend of mine who started um, in NGO, then she worked for Turner um, Construction uh, to get them to basically change their practices, construction practices, so that there's very little waste. Then she went to work for the city of Seattle uh, on sustainability issues. Now, the U.S. Green Building Council, which is an NGO consisting of architects, interior designers, manufacturers, government officials, NGOs, who have been dialoguing for years now to create building standards, the lead standards, you know, silver, gold, platinum, and now creating uh, neighborhood standards for cities, is now paying half of her salary, and she's working with other governments and other people in other cities who the USGBC is also paying half of their salary. So what you're seeing now is is a real breaking out of of the uh, even this movement as large as as, as it is it is no longer siloed. In other words, it is not like okay, there's civil society and there's government. What you see is this amazing fusion and inter uh, as you know from our friend. But of the because people need the intelligence and and because governments are so dysfunctional, you're seeing government on the local level really turn to people who have you know, the intelligence, the intellectual capital and the ideas and the experience who can basically work and start to transform the cities way we live and going back to the talk you gave, you know, really about the importance of cities and 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 I I agree with you that cities are the ecological arcs of the twenty first century. It's where humanity again in some collective intuitive way knows to move to the city, to wait it out because where we have the lowest impact on earth is in the city and you're getting this amazing Uh, 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 Cameron and uh, Architecture for Humanity and amazing work now on how to reimagine redesign the city so that they can be places where humans really flourish and our civilization flourishes during a very very difficult uh, transition in the 21st century Thank you very much Okay, Thank you